look forward to retirement and avoid the pitfalls. Keep listening for ways to maximize your retirement income. More Than Money with the Popowich Carmelli Advisory Group, CIBC Woodgundy, on News Talk 770. Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. I'm Faisal Carmelli, my co-host here, Dave Popwich. How you doing, buddy? I'm good. Faisal, how about you? Not bad. It's uh, end of first quarter. It was a good end. It was, it was a good, good quarter. Quarter. Good end. Good end. <laughs> good quarter. Yeah. It was a good quarter. That's what I was trying to say. Um, it was a good quarter. We're going to talk a little bit about. Uh, we'll talk about that. We're also going to talk about the global economic situation. I mean, uh, so we on the heels of what we've just said. Of course, we came off a last quarter that was really scary for a lot of people. Then we come off the best quarter. Right? What can people expect? What happened? Let's talk a little bit about what we what we see going forward. We're going to have a terrific guest to help us uh, at a global level understand what's going on. We had some good numbers from uh, from Canada on Friday, so we'll talk a little bit about that as well. Yeah, and so it was a, a very, very interesting week. Um, let's start off with there was a lift in the market. Well, hang on. Before we even talk about markets, I want to tease people here because we're in the middle of tax season. Ah. Okay? Okay. So I want people to stick around. Because in the last segment of this, we're going to talk about tax, tax preparation, what to expect, some of the common questions we're getting, right? How to prepare your team to make sure you're getting the right, best tax strategy for you. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Is that cool? That's going to be at the bottom half of the hour. So we'll definitely look forward to that. Yeah. Um, I was uh, trying to be cute by saying there was a lift in the market. (laughs) I know. I don't know if anybody caught it, but it was... It was very clever. Very clever, I thought. <laughs> Lyft. So Lyft started trading. They started trading on Friday. Yeah. Um, jumped out of the market pretty uh, high right out of the get-go, and the buzz is out there. This is a $24 billion, $30 billion company um, um, and hasn't made a penny in profit. Well, and I mean, this is they, they beat Uber to the market, but Uber should be IPOing at some point. Shortly, so a lot of yeah. the expectations building around, around that in. Uh, the initial public offering. Market. And this is going to be, these are the unicorns that keep on talking yep. about yep. how these big companies that come out and how how they're going to perform. And so the buzz goes out there. Whenever yep. there's an IPO or initial public offering, the buzz goes out there. And so um, what are your thoughts about buying IPOs? <sighs> thoughts about buying IPOs. Um, I guess it depends on what the what the company is like you made an interesting comment about lyft right there's a lot of value being baked into lyft on on future earnings because they don't have any yeah effectively right now right so uh, you know it i think it depends phase my i guess my answer is a bit of a uh, a hedge here but it depends on what the uh, the criteria is for adding a security to a portfolio correct right? so um you know you, you're subject to whatever they price it at uh, you saw facebook as a good example come out of the gates and just get pounded yep Right, we see lift on initial up. So, the, the, I mean, they're not; these are not freebies. They're not layups. You got to do your homework, and you have to understand the structure of the company. <clears throat> yeah. For example, Lyft, the the shares that were issued out were secondary shares. There's right. primary shares owned by the the initial owners. Well, a lot of that in the technology space, right? And uh, and a lot of that in the Canadian space. The when Canadian you look space, at a lot of yeah, a lot absolutely. of in Canada, um, there are multiple class shareholders out there, right? And you may not have voting rights. You right. may not have the same um, rights as other shareholders do. So you have to do your homework on these things. Correct. You can't just hear the buzz and then go buy into it and hope it works out because then, then you're speculating, you're not investing. Yeah, and, and I suppose if that's appropriate and suitable for you, then it, again, it comes down to suitability. Our, the, the, one, of the, one of the fundamental pillars of our business is suitability. Is that particular security suitable for you at this point in your life based on your objectives and so on and so forth. So keep that in mind when you're thinking about these things. Um, 
we're going to finish this quarter probably, or we finished the quarter with um, a massive lift this quarter. It was maybe the strongest quarter in 10 years. Uh-huh, you said lift. Yeah. Um, yes. So, and, well, but wait a second. We just had a terrible quarter. We last had a quarter. Terrible quarter last quarter, correct? Especially mm-hmm. in the U.S. market. Mm-hmm. Um, and the f- this is the best quarter in the last ten years on mm-hmm. the S and P five hundred index. Right. right. So that's a very considering where they, we are economically, how long it's been since the last recession, so on, valuation, so on and so forth. It just kind of well, reinforces not to market time. Well, because I mean, you don't know when you're going to have these best quarters. Well. Market time. I want to. I want to even. So we can talk about that. But let's talk about the emotional decision making that's taking place, right? So, um, you know, you got scared last quarter and you sell out in December, right? Uh, let's say you sold out on the twenty fourth. You hit the worst, the very low, and then you missed. If you weren't back in by the twenty seventh, you missed the very best trading day, and then if you didn't get back in until late in the quarter, you missed the best quarter in ten years in the S and P five hundred. So. Market timing and emotional decision-making are so closely tied together, and they um, I'm not trying to diminish the emotional impact that the volatility in the markets have, yep. right? Uh, and we've talked about this a lot. But gosh, if you're not properly structured, if you don't have a proper strategy that will allow you to stay invested through the ups and the downs of these markets, most people will fall subject to selling at the lows and buying at the highs or some you know close to that. And it's permanent damage you're doing to yourself along the way. Correct. I, I, I think... Um one of the things that people should be asking their advisors or if they're a do-it-yourself investor, the question of why. Why should I stay in this strategy? Why should I hold on to this investment? What, the, the question of why mm-hmm. gets to the root of the strategy that needs to be mm-hmm. implemented to reach some sort of goal. Mm-hmm. And failure to ask why to your advisor now is hoping it will work out. And when it doesn't, there's going to be huge disappointment. Or if there's volatility, there'll be huge disappointment. So answering the question of why should we hold on to this? For example, we never changed our U.S. exposure during the downturn in, in the last quarter. Right. And, and you know, we, we took some criticism for that from some people. Now, we did send out some communication ahead conversations about why we were doing that, yep. right? What we felt that the U.S. Fed policy around interest rates were going to be and the outcome around key uh, assumptions around the Chinese trade relationship, which were the big factors sort of influencing the market, yep. right? So unless the strategy was to be a market timer and say, here's the peak and here's the trough, then you know, you're know you asking your question about why is, is critical. Why are we staying the course on this? Here are the key assumptions under which we are investing. If those assumptions are different from you and your advisor, you have that conversation Absolutely. and you can adjust on that. But unless you have, and we, we did this show, I don't know how long it was ago now, but on market timing, unless you have the ability to pick the five best and the five worst trading days in any 20-year period, market timing is going to be a very, very difficult proposition. Correct. You know what was very interesting this week was the change in the gross domestic product in Canada. Mm-hmm. We went from a zero fourth quarter GDP right. to January being a positive number, surprisingly positive even after the fact, this was the largest curtailment yeah. of oil yeah. that we have seen in a long time in uh, in Canada and or in Alberta especially, and it still gave us positive numbers on the GDP. So that shot up our Canadian dollar versus the U.S. It it brought down some value of bonds. Mm-hmm. It it made people think about our economy in a different way. Maybe we're gonna might have an interest rate hike down the road. 
you know, these different things are coming up again. And every time there's a good number, people think interest rate hikes. Every time there's a bad number, yep. they're not going to do anything. Yep. But I think this just shows how how shaky our economy is and how in Alberta, we're heading into election time where we're getting different views from each of the parties that um, that the economy only feels right when you see people have jobs, when you see the value of your home go up, because that's the true indicator for most people when it comes to the economy. You can have any number you want, plus right. 5%, but if people are not getting jobs, right. it's hard to have a plus 5% without jobs. But if if you don't have jobs and you don't see right. people getting uh, um, their the housing value going up, uh, it's it's going to be a tough go. So I think in Alberta, people are going to feel that way. And I think in this leading up to um, election time, until we feel that things are going to be better, you're going to see a lot of volatility. Yeah. Well, and data points. I want to talk about data points for a second. Uh, trading around individual data points versus trends. Okay. Right. So you know, uh, our process is on a quarterly basis. We're reviewing economic data. Yeah. Because any one particular month, you can have a surprise uh, above or below, and it you know it affects markets trading on that particular month or day. But the idea is you have to pick months and trends. So I get lots of questions, you know, the, in the news and the press, the headlines have been the inverted yield curve. Okay, lots of questions about that. Does this mean we're going to a recession right away? You know, it's one of several factors. Mm -hmm. Okay, it tends to be a leading indicator, but you got to remember there's some, there's some uh, complexity even in, in that particular metric. So you got to be very careful about responding to the individual data points. You have to have an economic dashboard, as we call it, right? Yeah. And make sure that the trend, Okay, not one data point, but the trend is moving in any particular direction to be adjusting your strategy. Could you, could you imagine if people reacted to their health or their or to a health procedure based on one data point? Right, right. So why would you impact your financial health on one data point? Right, and that's where yeah, we and that's the volatility, right? Okay, enough said about that. Um, listen, we're going to talk to Shea Shatria next. Uh, we're going to talk some uh, some global economics right so we've we said we came off this w terrible quarter last quarter we've got the best quarter this quarter what can we expect in the future okay stick around for that you're on 770 chqr and more than money welcome back you're here with dave and Faisal on 770 chqr and Faisal, we just finished up a great quarter as we've <laughs> talked about yep. we came off a terrible quarter last quarter things are all over the place we got to make some sense of this for people and i think people are at least here in alberta are looking at the alberta or calgary economy and reflecting that as a part of the global economy. There's been many people I've sat down with, Dave, that say to me, well, we're not getting pipelines and we're right. not, and Alberta's not growing, so the stock market's going to fall. So right. the U.S. market's not going to do well. Like, right. So we've got to get out of stocks, yeah, right? Because yeah. we can't get a pipeline in Alberta. Yeah, right. so, that, that, so I think we need to kind of um, talk about what's happening in the world and kind of give us a global view of things, and then we can always bring it down to Canada and maybe even Alberta if we possibly can on that. Yeah. Yeah, and we're going to have, uh, well, we've got a terrific reoccurring guest joining us again today, uh, Shea Shatria. He's the Director of Canadian Strategies at Russell Investments. Shea, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So um, let's put you just kind of on the spot right off the bat. I'd like to start at a very high, high level, macroeconomic level, and maybe you can give us uh, just a bit of a sense, or our listeners a bit of a sense, Shea, as to where you think we are from a global macro perspective, and then we'll kind of drill down into some different areas. Sure, and it's interesting how you guys noted that uh, performance has been quite quite strong for the first quarter. But um, if you look at what's happened in, in, from a financial market perspective, relative to what's what's kind of been going on from a macroeconomic perspective, there's almost a dichotomy or, or a dichotomy between the two. And I think it does help to sort of set the stage in terms of 
what has transpired, not over the, just the last quarter, but over the last two quarters, I think will help explain where we are right now and where we could potentially be going down the line. I mean, in Q4 of 2018 was a bit of a rough patch, as we know. The equity markets did sell off, um, and there was a lot of tension that was being built in at that point in time. And what I think it's important for um, the audience to understand is what caused those tensions, right? So there was a, there were a few things because the U.S. economy was growing pretty strong for uh, for 2018 overall, um, and but what had transpired is one is uh, financial conditions were incrementally tightening, we were getting tighter uh, throughout the year. So you had the Federal Reserve raise rates four times in 2018, and then the last one of their rate hikes coming in December. Um, even the Bank of Canada raised rates, but more importantly, the Fed had raised rates four times. And behind the scenes, we had, of course, the trade tensions, which were mounting with the uncertainty with regards to the U.S., and China and China, so you had the trade tensions as well as the Chinese economy had been slowing. Um, had been there's been an obvious slowing that was taking place in the Chinese economy, and that obviously had a broader effect on emerging economies, but not only uh, emerging markets, but also the European economy had a bit of a slowdown. So you had this global growth and global trade flows start to slow over the fourth quarter. And at the same time, you had investors starting to get concerned about the U.S. economy, which was also starting to show signs of deceleration, especially as the prior stimulus uh, from taxes and prior tax stimulus as well as fiscal stimulus starts to fade yep. with the backdrop of the Fed raising rates and projecting to continue to raise rates. That uh, obviously caused a lot of tension for the financial markets. You had the sell-off in Q4. And then what really changed and what helped uh, the first quarter returns um, this year in 2019 had been almost an about face that has taken place from global central bankers. You had the Federal Reserve, the European Central Bank, the Bank of Canada, um, the, uh, the, the New Zealand Central Bank, as well as Australia. So across the board, you had global central bankers saying, you know what? We heard what the markets have been telling us. We see the data that's coming through from the from the global economy and things are softening and we need to we need to take a breather in terms of uh, mm -hmm. the ex the pace of rate increases. And that is what the markets started getting a little bit more comfortable um, with, uh, with the central banks um, holding back on further tightening of financial conditions. And you, you can argue that quarter, fourth quarter of last year, equity markets probably sold off, a little, probably got a little bit oversold. So in Q1, we had a little bit of a catch-up phase. Um, so we had a really strong uh, first quarter of 20. Uh, of, of 2019. So, Shay, can I just I would, jump in sure, here, Shay? I just wanted to ask a question. I think some people have a hard time understanding that when uh, last year, when the Federal Reserve or other central banks, including Bank of Canada, were raising interest rates, um, the markets and people were getting concerned about that. Now, some people will say we raise interest rates when the economy is doing well, when it's 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 um, over over frothiness, and so and then when we hear that okay, we're not going to raise interest rates, and we're we're, we're going to have a slowdown in that, uh, we start seeing the markets recover. So why are can you kind of give a breakdown for our listeners of why interest rates going up mean bad things for the stock market, and when interest rates are not going up? That's a good thing for the stock market. And that actually, that's a, that's a great question. So what, as I mentioned, the Federal Reserve had raised rates four times, right? So initially, to your point, when, the, when a central bank 
starts the when it, when they initially start the process of increasing rates, uh, it actually is due to the conviction around the strength of the economy, of the strength of the domestic economy. And therefore, the equity markets, when the central banks just initially start raising rates, are actually comforted by that fact that there is conviction from the central bank that the economy is doing strong and inflation pressures are building um, for the right reasons. And therefore, we can, uh, the, the, central, the economy can withstand higher interest rates. That backdrop is not necessarily a bad backdrop from an equity market perspective because you're still at the initial stages of of the pace of rate increases. Now, what's happened in the U.S. is they hiked rates four times in uh, in, in 2018, as we know, but they also hiked rates three to four times back in 2017. So there have been um, a sequence of rate increases that have been happening over the, over the last couple of years. So we we're a little bit further into the rate hiking cycle, uh, you can argue, albeit interest rates are still fairly low from a historical perspective, but we were further into the rate tightening cycle. And it is now where, and so when the equity markets really start to get a little bit more concerned is, is the Fed or any central bank for that matter, are they over tightening financial conditions that um, it's not just in, it's not just related to the strength, but now the, there's potentially over-tightening that's taking place that actually can impede prospective growth going forward because interest rates have become a little bit too high relative to the pace of um, pace of growth that is expected. And it's that, you know, it's, it's, there isn't a, an exact science in terms of de- determining yeah. or what, that, what that inflection point is, um, but in the... But oftentimes you have to look at the data and what the data was starting to show was that we are we were seeing signs of slowing um, in the U.S. economy as well as the global economy and the Federal Reserve, which was fairly intent on just continuing uh, a tightening cycle of three to four rate hikes. And the first, you know, let's call it, you know, six rate hikes or so the markets were able to look through, especially with the stimulus that came from the U.S. Uh, But as the stimulus was fading uh, and you still had the Federal Reserve, which was signaling higher rates at a point in time when the rate of growth was starting to show signs of slowing, that's what kind of got the markets a little bit more spooked. Okay, we're going to finish up this segment. We've got a couple minutes left, uh, Shay, but uh, let's finish it up on, on this as a bit of a tease to the next segment. What are the big events that uh, investors need to be watching in 2019? What do we got to keep our eye on? And then the next segment, we'll talk a little bit about how to position for those things today. Okay, so give us give us your take on what the big events are that we need to watch. So in terms of the big events, I think there's a couple. So we talked about, we covered one, but central banks will still, yeah. I think, run the show. So we still need to keep, uh, keep an eye on that. And then the other big one, which is part of the problem, is and we, we kind of touched on it, but is also... Uh, trade tensions uh, that are taking place and that are still there. They haven't been completely resolved, but what transpires on that front will also have implications for, um, you know, the trajectory of financial markets as well as the economy. All right. We're going to get your assumptions about what that might look like by the end of the year at the next segment. You want to stick around for that. But before we sign off on this segment, uh, Faisal, we've got to talk a little bit about our upcoming seminar because we have to make sense of all this. Yeah. And how does it impact your retirement? How do you bulletproof and protect uh, during volatile markets? And more importantly, how do you make sure you have income for life? We'll discuss, we'll discuss that on 
Tuesday, April 23rd, 7 p.m. at the Carriage House Inn. You need to reserve your seats, so give us a call at 966-8400. That's 966-8400, or go to our website to register at morethanmoneyradio.com. Should you sell all your equities right now? Well, stick around after the break, because we're going to get a sense from Shea of where we're going for the rest of this year. You're on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Welcome back. You're here with Dave and Faisal. You're on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. We were uh, joined for the first segment and for this segment by Shea Shatria. He's a director of Canadian Strategies with Russell Investments. And Shea, in the first uh, segment, we were talking a little bit about um, sort of the setup, the crazy quarter we had last quarter, the good quarter we had this quarter, um, uh, and some of the things we've got to keep our eye on going forward. So let's talk about the rest of 2019 into 2020. Lots of press headlines about pending recession and so on and so forth. Um, let's, let's maybe set the rest of this year up with some key assumptions. So we know what we've got to keep our eye on uh, in terms of problems. Maybe uh, outline for us what we think the probabilities are of certain things happening, and then we can talk about how to position, given whatever those assumptions may be. Sure. So I think uh, you touch on a pretty hot button uh, topic these days in in in, in the financial press and, yep. and the markets is the recession, right? So I think maybe we should we should start right there uh, in terms of what our base case view is for for a recession and and is that likely to occur in 2019? So. Overview is that 2019, the odds now the odds for a recession have been incrementally increasing um, for some for over the last 12 months or so. We've been saying that we are in a late cycle. So part of the volatility that we've seen is a reflection of you know uh, the the market cycle being rather late. Right. But is the cycle over yet? Uh, we don't think so. So the reason why we don't think 2019 is still is unlikely to be a recession is for a few things. Um, one is of course we talked about the central bankers, the Fed in particular, Federal Reserve, uh, pausing. That's al- allowing for some of the tension uh, to ease as interest rates have come actually significantly lower uh, since over the since over the last month or so. Yep. So I think that eases financial conditions. Um, we talked about trade tensions, and then we, we talked about how that is a, is a key watch point. And there are some, you know, nascent signs that there will be some resolution that will be, uh, ho- you know, coming ho- hopefully sooner rather than later between U.S. and China. And that will likely take one huge cloud that was um, affecting the global financial markets, you know, and put it to the side uh, for the moment. So lower yields, easing trade tensions. The Chinese stimulus is, I think, another key story that ties into the picture. And we're starting to see, um, well, one thing we know is China has reduced their pace of growth to 6% is their target growth. And as we know, they'll do pretty much whatever it takes to ensure that they hit that target. And mm-hmm. we're starting to see the stimulus um, actually uh, reflected in credit data. So stabilizing China and potentially the stimulus coming through will be positive. And we're also seeing, you know, early signs that the European growth, which had uh, taken a back seat in, in 2018, starting to stabilize and, and look a little bit better. So we do think for those reasons, you know, the global economy had a, has, is going through a bit of a soft patch. Um, it's still late. We don't expect robust growth by any means, but we don't expect the recession either. So we'd still say that's a lower probability. We think that the probability of a recession starts to increase as you go into uh, the 2020 time horizon, you know, mid to late 2020 is still our central case. But that, but that's not to say that, you know, volatility is now over. We think right. that late cycle means that you have to expect heightened volatility and that will likely pers- stay with us. So, you know, expect volatility uh, to continue. 
perhaps not recessionary uh, type of downturn in the economy, but the growth will be soft nonetheless. And 2020 is where we would want to be a little bit more vigilant in terms of the economic data. Okay. Can we narrow it down to Canada uh, as well? We get lots of questions about the Canadian economy itself. We had some weak data uh, and some surprising strong data just, uh, you know, late last week. So maybe just give us your take on, on the Canadian economy. Yeah, you know, I think he, <laughs> you, you made a good point. It's, it was it was a bit of a refresher to have a week of actually decent um, economic data coming out of Canada uh, for all the naysayers that have been out there. Um, but the point is that, so I, I think the big point to data, economic data point to, to make reference of is, of course, the January, January GDP data was yeah. much stronger and pretty broad based. So that was welcome to see uh, for sure, you know, what... It, and, and although it was broad-based, sectors that we still saw some weaknesses were twofold. And I think this gets into the broader view on the Canadian economy. Uh, we did see uh, the resource sector still hold back uh, economic growth in January, uh, as well as retail sales. Uh, and the retail sales, so the retail sales is in part and parcel a reflection of the decelerating trend that we've been seeing in the housing market. So therein lies a problem for the Canadian economy and why we would, you know, we're expecting GDP growth for 2019 to come in around one, one and a half, one to one and a half percent, probably trending closer to, to the one than the one and a half right now mm-hmm. is in part because of the challenges on the resource side, but as well as consumption trends have been slowing and as well as the housing market has been slowing. And those, those will be two critical headwinds. And unless we see a significant pickup in business investment, we think that the Canadian economy um, is, won't be recessionary. As, as we talk about, we do believe that it'll grow, but it'll be below trend growth, um, if you will, for, for, for 2019. And again, if the U.S. economy, we say, is potentially recession-like uh, in, in, in the back half of 2020, that's our largest trading partner, and there's no way that the Canadian economy can, that we believe, would, would escape a recession uh, if the U.S. economy, of mm-hmm. course, is headed into a recession. So we do think that there's a lot of concerns out there for the Canadian economy. Again, similar to the U.S., probably a little bit more downside risk in Canada relative to the U.S. in part because our housing situation um, and the challenges that we have on the resource side, but no recession. But 2020, again, similar to the U.S. stories where we get a little bit more concern. On the Shay, outlook there. Shay, I'm going to jump in here and ask you now, um, how would you position uh, a portfolio of people who are transitioning or living in retirement? They need growth still. So how would you position a portfolio with everything you talked about from an economic backdrop in globally and here in Canada? Yeah, and this is, this is where it gets a little bit more challenging, right? Because we are um, as, as I indicated, late in the cycle, right? And you can consider that that you know, a lot of the easy money has been made, so to speak, and things will get a little bit more choppy, a little bit more volatile uh, over the next uh, one to three years or so. So therefore, one thing I think, you know, we can't do is get complacent uh, and, and um, you know, get overreach for yeah. yield or overstretch for returns. I think... Um, the later you get in the cycle, the margin of safety becomes much more critical to consider, and the margin of safety is actually eroding uh, as we get further and further into the cycle. So we do believe having, first off, you know, depending on your risk tolerance, you, you need to have a, ba- a balance, a property diversified balance portfolio is key, where you still need um, not only equities, but you definitely need the ballast and the offset that comes from bonds. I think case, again, case in point, is uh is is in 20 2018 uh we had 
Canadian equities were, were down, Canadian bonds were positive, slightly, but positive, right? So you need that offset. And we saw that again um, more recently as tensions sort of mounted over the last uh, month or so, we saw how bonds have been doing well. So although fixed income is has some challenges, if you think more longer term, three, five, ten years, uh, because of the low yielding environment, but the fact is that you still need fixed income so to, to, as, to be there as a ballast. So you still need some bonds, uh, but at the same time, you need to have some growth in the portfolio because no one has a crystal ball as much as you know, we talk about what our projections are. No one knows precisely what will happen. You could have um, you know, growth continuing. Maybe the cycle gets extended further. You know, God knows this has already been a rather unusual and long cycle, um, defying most people. So there's no reason it could, that it could continue a little bit longer than we expect. So therefore, there could be a little bit more runway. So, you so Shay, are, are, you say, are you saying, Shay, that we should be overweight, meaning 60% in the stock market, 40% in the bond market? Like, do you have any any number that sort of a base case I'm trying to get you to say some numbers for me my friend that's okay <laughs> no no problem so you know what the, and again that will vary based on the individual risk uh, investor's risk profile of sure. course but let's just split it um, you know I guess the best way to kind of illustrate the way we're positioned is to talk about the way we're positioned in our portfolios yep. in our multi-asset uh, growth and income strategy which is the neutral point would be 50-50, right? And it's obviously diverse, 50% uh, fixed income, but diversified within various fixed income, 50% um, uh, equity, but diversified across various um, equities. So we believe we're late cycle. We think there's going to be volatility. So first and foremost, we want to be, we want to have a little bit of a defensive uh, uh, bias to our overall asset allocation. So therefore, we do have uh, a little bit of cash in our portfolios. We have about, you know, call it around three to five percent that we're holding in cash. Uh, we still have fixed income in our portfolios, uh, but we've actually have a slight underweight towards our core fix, and we have a slight overweight to what we call our absolute return fixed income strategy. And that's again to help sort of navigate through the interest rate volatility that we're seeing uh, right now, as we are in the late late cycle. So we still have, um, you know, fixed income. But the preference in terms of the exposure to fixed income is more on the unconstrained side, where we're slightly overweight, about 2 to 3%. Um, within equities, the preference, the modest preference has been uh, towards, so on balance, we have a defensive bias coming from the, from as a result of the cash. And within equities, to be honest, we're broadly neutral, where we do have a preference is towards our, um, in, our global infrastructure, uh, strategy. And, and the reason there is that infrastructure, we believe, is a more defensive uh, equity asset class. And so in periods of heightened um, economic uh, uncertainty and uh, stock market volatility, that's an asset class that tends to hold up a little bit better. So in so much as you can't abandon your equity exposure and you want, you need some, uh, you need some equities in your portfolio, we believe, the, you know, being in the late cycle that we are, that having some um, an overweight towards our infrastructure uh, strategy makes sense. So we're currently about one to two percent overweight our our infrastructure strategy. That's that's but great, overall, Shane. We do we have, have to have get going, though. Shane, we do goal. have to get going. Unfortunately, we do have to uh, end it there. Uh, I want to thank you so much. Defense was the message. We got that. Yep. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. All right, we've been joined by uh, Shay Shatri. He's the director of Canadian Strategies Russell Investments, and. 
Let's wrap up this segment, my friend, with uh, just a quick mention of our uh, upcoming seminar. Tuesday, April 23rd, 7 p.m. at the Carriage House Inn. Uh, you need to reserve your seats, 966-8400, or go on our website at morethanmoneyradio.com. Stick around after the break. We're going to talk about tax and how to get the right tax professional on your team at this time of the season. You're on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Welcome back. You're here with David Faisal on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Uh, lots to digest in that, you know, in the first couple of segments here about markets and whatnot, Faisal. But let's switch gears a little bit. Uh, it's tax time. Yes. Okay. Um, and, you know, we talk about uh, nobody living on pre-tax income. We live on after-tax income. Tax is an important. You've got to be savvy. We've got to have a strategy around it. We need to understand the complexity of it. And I'm going to suggest for a minute, because we get lots of questions at tax time, right? And some of them are quite surprising. Okay. Um, but I want to I want to draw... Um, maybe a, a, a similarity here. We talk about in the investment world that the rules of investing change as you move into retirement. And there's a number of reasons for that. Um, but what it does is it requires a specialist, right? So if you're, if you're uh, accumulating and growing wealth, okay, that period of your life, financial life, very different from when you're starting to decumulate or withdraw and live off of your wealth, okay? Correct. So it requires different thinking, different strategies, and so on and so forth. Said a different way. You know, in the in health, you'll go to your general, uh, your family doctor, your family doctor, okay, yeah, and for a general checkup. Yeah. Let's say you find something that needs some uh, some further investigation. They refer you to a specialist, right, yes. to go do that. Okay. So I'm going to suggest here, uh, as a uh, a thesis or at least a point of conversation, that that's the same in the accounting world, right? So if you think about from a tax preparation perspective, you may be working with somebody for a very long time and had great service with basically just T4 income, a very simple sort of scenario, T4 income, you got to Employment prepare. income, yeah. Yeah, yep. okay. And now things change because now you're, you don't have that employment income anymore. Now you have a whole bunch of different sources of income coming from lifts and liras and rifts and non-registered accounts and corporate accounts and oh my goodness, I can't keep up. I got CPP and OES. Too many things coming your way. There's a whole bunch of different types of income. That's a very good point you make there, uh, Dave, because when you're working, and then we're going to take an employee as an example, mm -hmm. you really only have one source of income. Yeah, and may in fact have very few write-offs. Correct. And there's not too much to worry about when it comes to tax time. You just pay your taxes, maybe put a RSP contribution, yeah. away you go. Yeah. When it comes time for retirement, you have multiple sources of income. Right. Coming at multiple, uh, multiply different or different times. That's yep. the best way of saying it. And if you think about it, for you know, if you know somebody, if you're not retired and you know somebody who is, ask them how many different tax receipts they get. Right. Or if you're if you're re retiring, ask your accountant what you should expect. Mm -hmm. And I think this is where doing a bit of a gut check, uh, team check. Yeah. Check on who's the right people for your team in this next part of your life. Right. Um, the tax side of things is very important. Right. So the individual who's working with you to do to prepare your taxes, um, first find out are they just a tax preparer or are they a tax advisor? Right. So ask the question, what do I get? as part of the package that I'm paying for that service. Do I get a sit down meeting to talk about what happened last year and what we can do in the future for this year, so 2019? Right. I think that's a good starting point because there are many tax professionals that just prepare taxes. Drop off your paperwork and then pick it up or right. I'll email it to you. Right. And there's no conversation, no strategy, no 
collaborative way of working with your investment professional. And that's where the breakdown happens. Sure. Or, or potentially you're leaving after tax return on the table, right? You're not getting as much money uh, back or you're not paying taxes as efficiently as you possibly could. Yeah. Right? And this is the issue. Now, um, there's always a question. We get, we get tons of questions at this time. The ones that sort of concern me um, the most are when the tax preparer that a, a client family is working with yeah. says, I don't know how to handle this. Call your advisors. We're, we're tax savvy, but we're actually not accountants, okay? And we know how to handle some of these things, and the tax preparer doesn't. So that's why we're having this conversation today. We've had a series of these conversations, and I, listen, I'm if not. We're having accountants calling us, asking us how to complete the, the documents, right. or which document should we use, or right. what does this document mean? And that that's that, that concerns me, right. because it sh it, if you don't know as an accountant find the information, and if you can't, and you're asking us who are not accountants, um, then maybe you've gone outside your scope. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, I'm not ragging on anybody here, but but there's a specialist, there are people who specialize, who understand the different sources of income, write-offs and whatnot, for yeah. people that are in retirement, or perhaps high net worth clients that you know need different tax strategies, than there are for people that just have T4 income and RSP payments, and Correct. that's fine. That's fine, right? But um, And this doesn't all just fall on the accounting profession. This falls on individuals. I think more on the individual than the accountant. Right. Red flag. Red flag when the accountant says, the person you're working with says, I don't know how what a uh, T035 is or a T1135 or a, a, a T0058 or whatever the case may be. I don't know how to complete these things. Okay, that's fine. But these are important documents. These are important tax documents for people at this stage. Correct. Right? And so we're just, you know, I guess raising raising the the, the awareness that uh, a, a team involves a whole bunch of different people yep. that specialize at certain areas in certain areas at certain times in life. Correct. Right. No different than the message that we give from a from an investment perspective. And I think it's the responsibility of the individual, mm -hmm. the customer, the mm -hmm. client, yeah. to do their proper due diligence on their advisors. Right. In your phase of life, <laughs> when you enter into retirement. Who should be on your team? Mm -hmm. And we normally pick out on three from a financial perspective. Right. The lawyer to help you with legal matters as you go through life. Yeah. The accountant for tax matters. The financial advisor for retirement ma retirement and investment matters. And Faisal, I'd even throw in there maybe, never mind financial, just add in there uh, physicians, right? So you Medical professional. Medical professional. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So that that's, goes beyond financial. Yeah. Absolutely. And so when you're looking at and you're sitting down, you can re-interview your professional. Mm -hmm. I'm now entering into a different phase in my life. And I want to know if you're the right person for me. And so I'm going to ask you a few questions. Mm -hmm. What percentage of your clients are in the same situation as I am? Right. That's the number one question you should right. be asking. Because if you have a professional that has a small minority in the same situation as you, then the familiarity of what your situation is won't be there. Well, it's not their main business, right? It's not their main business. Yep. And so that's the question number one that everybody should be asking their professionals. Right. And we always hear, well, I do that too, or we do that too. Yep. Don't accept that in this phase of your life. Mm -hmm. because that's in any a, phase, in any phase, right? I mean, we, we happen to talk to people that are transitioning to a well, living retirement, but well, in we any ha, phase. We, yeah, and I, I think this, because it's more complex in this period, yeah. I'm more sensitive yeah. to that. Too. Yeah. Yeah. So I think when, we, when we, you sit down with a professional, accountant, financial advisor, What's their main source of business? Right. How do you earn your revenue? From what type of client do you deal with? Right. And there are 
I'd say a lot of accountants whose vast majority of their business is with people who are growing their income. Mm-hmm. For sure. And they may not have a vast majority of people in their practice that are drawing on different sources of income. Right. And so it becomes challenging. Um, and so this is where you need to do your, your due diligence. You need to re-interview your professionals. Right. And the second question that I think is very important is, are you prepared to sit down with me and my other professionals in a collaborative form to provide strategy so I can reach my goals. Right, right. And then I'm gonna I'm gonna expand the conversation. And we just we're running out of time, but I want to address the do-it-yourself tax preparers too. <laughs> right, yeah. because it was a heck of a lot easier if you accept what we've just said um, that the complexity of the sources of income has just gone up and you move into retirement. Think about what you're taking on if you're a do-it-yourselfer. If you were doing it yourself and you were using software as you had just employment income and maybe an RSP contribution, relatively simple. There's 2,000 pages of tax code that you better understand and you better understand all the different write-offs and all the different sources of income and how they're taxed and yeah. so on if you and want to not, do it yourself. We're not knocking those, those software programs that are out there that can help you file, but strategy is not what they provide no, on, exactly. those, on those exactly. software programs. Yeah. And they don't collaborate with your other professionals. Right. So the software does not replace an accountant. Right. The software replaces the inputting of the data. Correct. <laughs> That's all it does. That's all it does. And, and, and I'm an advocate, at least once in a while, you should, on the tax side, if you're doing it yourself, consider using a tax professional just to see if there's a different outcome. Get a tax opinion. Get a tax opinion, right? And I don't know how much you have to spend. If it's several hundred dollars, do you get more than that back on stuff that you wouldn't have otherwise done, right? This is a good investment decision. Yeah. But Think, even if you don't get it back, like even if you spent a few hundred dollars and the accountant said, good job, you yeah, did everything, everything right. right. Yeah. At least you know that. You've got it yeah. tested it's by an insurance policy. You know, sometimes people fix their own cars. Yeah. It's not bad to get a mechanic saying, yeah, it's looking good. <laughs> yeah, your brakes are okay. You're right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want to mess that one up. <laughs> so yeah. that's the same thing when it comes to your financial health. You don't want to mess that one up. Yeah, too. yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, enough said about that. Um, We've got a seminar. We, we do have a seminar coming up. Let's remind everybody. We're going to talk about tax. We're going to talk about the global economy. We're going to talk about how to bulletproof your retirement on Tuesday, yep. April 23rd, 7 p.m. at the Carriage House Inn. Now, we are getting full. Mm-hmm. So we need you to reserve your seats right away. Give us a call, 966-8400, 966-8400, or go on our website to register at morethanmoneyradio.com. Um, if you'd like to get uh, any of these sessions uh, podcast to you, we can do that for you very easily. All you have to do is go to More Than Money CHQR. That's on Apple Podcast or in your favorite podcast app. We will deliver these directly to you. You can listen to them at a time that's convenient for you. They're also all available on our website at morethanmoneyradio.com. Thanks for tuning in to a, another edition of More Than Money on 770CHQR. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund, an investment industry regulatory organization of Canada. 
David Popovich and Faisal Carmeli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmeli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.